Good afternoon. Thank Council for your flexibility at this time. Uh, the, we'll hear the case of State versus uh, Copley, and we will hear from the appellant. May it please the court, Chief Justice Newby, Associate Justices of the North Carolina Supreme Court, good afternoon. I would like to reserve 10 minutes for rebuttal. My name is Marilyn Ozer, and I'm here representing Chad Copley in his appeal for first-degree murder conviction out of Wake County. The issues in this case all revolve around the Castle Doctrine. I would like this court to imagine, if you will, that it's getting close to midnight. You're in your bedroom with your wife, in the adjoining bedroom is one of your two daughters, one of whom is three years old, another one is five years old. You hear a noise of a boisterous crowd outside your windows. You go over to the window, you look down, and there's a crowd of people. We know that some of them are gang members because in a pretrial hearing in March 2018, it was revealed that the Raleigh Police Department database had some of these individuals down as gang members. So you shout out, be quiet, people are sleeping. And you use some words that you wouldn't use in this court, you wouldn't use in a tea room, but perhaps you would use if you're talking to the type of individuals gathered below your window. Do they respond by saying, yes, sir, we'll be leaving now? No. They respond with epithets, and more importantly, two of them raise their shirts to show that they have guns in their waistband, and one actually pulls his gun out and points it in the direction of the house. And one of the daughter's bedrooms is in the front of the house. So you back away from your window, talk to your wife. She convinces you to call 911. You find a gun, and you head downstairs. So let's stop there. Are you protected by the Castle Doctrine in this situation when at least three people with guns are in front of your house, one of them aimed at you? How many guns does it take before you're protected by the Castle Doctrine? But, in fact, according to the trial court and the Court of Appeals below, he has lost some of the protection of the Castle Doctrine because they find that his use of profanity was an initial provocation to a fight. Really? A man standing at a window facing a crowd of approximately 30 people is wanting to start a fight? And what kind of topsy-turvy, upside-down world is this in which a crowd gathers in your front yard, noisy, <coughs> boisterous, they're trespassing, they're disturbing the peace, but they're not the ones initiating the fight. It's you because you open your window and tell them to be quiet using four-letter words. 
that's just crazy. Counsel, are, are you familiar with this court's recent decision in State versus Hicks? Yes, sir, I'm very familiar. She's my client. I thought you would be. I believe you stood at this podium, did you not, and mm -hmm. argued this case. So my question to you is, isn't the, uh, the argument that Justice Berger and I described in Hicks part of the problem here that maybe there would be an the, or everything you describe would be a reason why the Castle Doctrine should not, in fact, apply here. But uh, at the trial level, your client's counsel said, go ahead and give the instructions that are the ones that sort of opened the door to this. So are, aren't we first having to ask, can we, can we even really consider the issue that you just described? Well, that's not exactly what he said. He said... This is Mr. Tarleton, the defense attorney, on page 1615 of the transcript. <clears throat> Telling folks to keep it down, they're making so much noise, and even if you use it profanity, you're not intending to literally start a fight. So he's explained to the trial court that aggressor initiate, initiating a provocation doesn't fit here. Well, but does he actually say anywhere in the transcript anything to the effect of, Your Honor, I object, this, this instruction shouldn't be given, or, you know, he, he actually says, we would ask if the jury is going to be given instruction on provocation. He doesn't say, and we think they shouldn't. He just says, if the jury's going to be instructed on provocation, that they be informed on the law of initial aggression. So now he's asking the court to give this um, an instruction which, on aggression, which is intended and designed to calculate this inspiring a fight, which you're telling, telling folks to keep it down. So he's saying, tell the jury that simply telling folks to keep it down isn't necessarily aggression. But he's not saying there's no basis on the state's evidence for an instruction. I mean, he doesn't say object that I could find anywhere in the transcript. Well, I think under Rule 10, Ten, if the trial court has been informed of what the problem is with the objection, then um, they should, it should be addressed. And he's been informed. He's been told telling folks to keep it down is not intending to start a fight. Right. So he well, says that. He doesn't use the, the words, but he says it. Well, except that he's saying, here's what I think you should say in your instruction on the aggressor doctrine. He doesn't say there should be no instruction on the aggressor doctrine in this case. I would argue that what he's trying to do is lessen the damage. The judge has already said, I'm going to instruct on the aggressor doctrine. But doesn't he have, four. he has some obligation to tell the judge, we think that's wrong, I object. I think that is certainly one way to look at it. I would ask this court to consider it either under plain error or rule two, rule 10, that the court was aware that he was disagreeing with the idea that using a profanity fits in with the statute, saying that if you are the aggressor or if you have initiated the fight, then you lose the protection of the castle doctrine. 
And so on the question of whether or not the evidence in this case justified an instruction on the aggressor doctrine, isn't it true that we have to take the evidence in the light most favorable to the state? As far as giving the instruction, yes. But if you look at the case law that discusses whether or not a charge goes to the jury, the state at least has to provide an iota of evidence. And I would argue in this case they don't. And under State v. Sumter, it explains that if the defendant's evidence doesn't contradict and it's not inconsistent with the state's evidence, then the defendant's evidence can be used in his defense. But the version of events that you began with is certainly the defendant's version of events. But as I understand the testimony in this case, the state's version of events is quite different. And for example, are we in determining whether or not there was sufficient evidence on this record to instruct on the aggressor doctrine, are we entitled to take into account the testimony of the interaction between the defendant and 911 dispatch? And in particular, when he said, I'm going to kill him. Is that not part of the evidence of what happened before the shots were fired that the state is entitled to rely on? I don't believe it's part of the evidence that has a direct impact on the eventual shooting because he says him. And it doesn't really make sense if you interpret it that way. It does make sense if you interpret it that he's mad at his son, Troy, who he thinks is part of that group. But he also says to the dispatcher, I'm locked and loaded. He wasn't saying that in reference to his son. No, but once a gang of people showing you guns have appeared in your front yard, you have a right to be locked and loaded under the Castle Doctrine. So he's not saying anything that takes him out of the protection of the Castle Doctrine by saying that. Well, and there was instruction on the Castle Doctrine. The question here is on the state's version of the evidence, was there sufficient evidence to justify an aggressor doctrine instruction as well? Isn't that what we have to consider? That's what we have to consider. And what the trial court ruled on was the profanity, not the 211 call. And to go a little bit further into the state's evidence, we know that there are anywhere from 20 to 40 young people gathered in the front yard. And we know that the state had access to all of those witnesses. 20 of them, according to an officer, had dispersed by the time the officers arrived. But there were several left that were handcuffed. Certainly the state got their names and addresses. But the state did not use one of those young people to testify as to what was said, what was happening, what they felt when Chad Copley shouted a profanity at them. So the state did not provide evidence at all of what the people who were assaulting thought, did, heard, anything. So to rely on a 911 call that wasn't talking directly to the group gathered in front of the window is not really on point. 
I'm somewhat concerned because as, as you can likely tell from the Hicks concurrence, I mean, there are several justices on this court that agree with arguments you've made now repeatedly about some problems with the Castle Doctrine's intersection with the common law aggressor doctrine. Uh, the problem is I'm waiting for your friends in the trial division to make these arguments to trial courts and preserve them. I just think the challenge here is it's hard to look at this case and try to make this the one where we sort it all out because the argument you've made, the argument that Justice Berger made in Hicks, it just isn't an argument that was made to the trial court in this case. That, I think, is what I'm struggling with, at least. Well, it's interesting, and I pointed this out in my reply brief, that the trial court judge and the defense attorney had a discussion about the difference between instruction in the Castle Doctrine and self-defense. And the difference is the use of the word aggressor versus initially provokes. And what the trial court said was, yeah, I bet you looked at it too. This is page 1616. It would have been, you know, it would have been better if the legislature had used the same word in both, but they didn't. No criticism. They didn't use the same language. So I can't see any difference between, between it. That's between aggressor and initially provoked. So if the trial judge who's researched it can't tell the difference between aggressor and initially provoked, I think that shows that he is looking at the differences between the Castle Doctrine and the self-defense instruction, and he doesn't see it. And if he doesn't see it, how can we expect a jury of 12 laymen to distinguish between the word aggressor and the phrase initially provoked? There is no difference. So when they're being instructed on the Castle Doctrine and then on self-defense, they hear what they and the judge think is the same thing. Initially provoked and aggressor are the same. So I think Justice Dietz, the trial court was concerned about this and the defense attorney and they discuss it. Well, it, and, and, and again, not to belabor Justice Dietz's point, but um, the Castle Doctrine was, was passed uh, and the common law was supplanted by um, the statutes. And in doing so, the legislature could have well said aggressor, which brings in um, to play all these common law uh, terms and, and cases that we have in our precedent. But they chose a different uh, phrase, initially provoked, and they chose it presumably for a reason when they could have used aggressor. So um, it, I, I, think it's, I think it's somewhat lazy uh, to say there, there's no distinction when, um, again, to Justice Dietz's point, some of these arguments need to be made in the trial court because here what, what the defense attorney did was uh, in response to saying uh, provocation, for the trial court saying provocation, defense attorney said, well, we want the aggressor instruction. And, and to me, that is um, inconsistent with the language of the statute. 
the trial attorney doesn't say he wants the aggressor instruction. He says that if you're going to use footnote four to the instruction, please include language that makes it a little less toxic to the defendant. Right. I ask that they be informed on the law of initial aggression, which is different from initially provoked. He's, he's trying to defend his client the best way he can. The judge has made it clear that he's going to say the word aggressor. So he wants to make sure the jury understands that he has to initially provoke. That's where the trial attorney is coming from. But what the judge and the trial attorney both agree is that's not what the jury's going to hear. They're going to hear aggressor. And they heard it over and over and over again in this case, in the jury instructions. And if this court does not believe that he objected strongly enough, clearly enough, I ask that you review it under plain error or that we not be precluded from ineffective assistance. But to go on with our imagination, imagine you're in a house, you're in an upstairs room. You hear someone fiddling with a doorknob. Maybe you hear someone trying to break a window. You go downstairs and you put yourself in a spot where you can watch what the intruder might be doing. You can fire at that intruder, but the intruder can't see you. Now, is that okay? Not according to the trial court. According to the trial court, if you do not come out from hiding and say, I'm here, I've got a gun, shoot me, paint a target on your chest, you're lying in wait. That just makes no sense as far as the Castle Doctrine is concerned. To say that going downstairs because you fear there's an intruder coming into your house, but not showing yourself to the intruder means you're lying in wait is contrary to the case law, since lying in wait means the intruder uh, has to know, the intruder has to be unaware that he's doing something. It's contrary to the aggressor doctrine, because if he initially provoked, how can he at the same time be lying in wait? Because if you initially provoke, then the victim has been warned that you're there. So that's a contradiction that doesn't make sense. But again, we have to look at State v. Sumter, which says if the state hasn't provided evidence, then you can use the defendant's evidence. In this case, again, as I said before, none of those young people outside were called to testify. Instead, all we have is Chad Copley's testimony. And on page 1404, he says, I repeatedly said, I've called 911, I've got a gun, leave here. The state didn't call one witness that contradicts that Chad Copley actually did announce his presence. So we have two things here. One, according to the Castle Doctrine, it makes no sense that you have to tell the intruder that you're here, tell him where you are, and that you've got a gun. I mean, really? Who would do that? Um, may I ask? I'll ask a question now. Um, 
Uh, with respect to lying in wait, um, my understanding of the state's arguments below uh, and before this court is that uh, particularly going into the garage was a factor in all of that. And so uh, can you help me reconcile the difference between watching and waiting and lying in wait um, and the, in the context of the lying in wait and then remaining in your own home, watching and waiting to see if an intruder that you've seen outside is going to forcibly enter your home? Can you help me see the difference in, in how, how that would work? And, and, and also comment on the fact that he was actually in the garage as opposed to the house proper. Okay, I will start out with that. It may have been built as a garage, but it's been converted. It's his den, it's his man cave. It's got a couch, it's got a television, it's got lights. It even has a barber chair because he cuts hair on the side. His son is down there watching television to come up with a statement that this isn't part of his house because it was built to be a garage makes no sense. He didn't leave his house. It wasn't a case in which he had to go out the door and go back into a door to get to the garage. You just entered it from your house. Never went outside. It's no different from going into a den that was built to be a den. And it, it's just strange to say that because it was built as a garage, it's a garage forever. Doesn't matter, you've got a couch in there and a refrigerator and you sit down there and drink beer all day. Um, um, the question I have about the, your lying in wait argument is, uh, um, the, the jury verdict here was very specific and, and divided out whether or not it was first degree murder based on premeditation and deliberation and slash or, the verdict form says, lying in wait. And don't our precedents say that even if it was error to instruct on lying in wait, the fact that they also found, they checked both, right? They checked that he was guilty of first degree murder by premeditation and de deliberation. And then they also checked the line for he was guilty by lying in wait. It, 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 don't our precedents say that if, if it was error to instruct on lying in wait, they still found him guilty on the alternate theory, and so it, there's no grounds to overturn the jury's verdict here. That's exactly right, and I wanted to say to this court that Mr. Copley is not asking for a new trial for, uh, to, be, to be let out of prison. It's not as if he's asking to have the charge one charge dropped, and if he found evidence insufficient, then he'd walk out of prison. What he's asking for is a new trial in front of a properly, properly instructed jury so that he has a chance to prove himself innocent under the Castle Doctrine. But I guess my question, it seems to me that question still stands, that is to say, isn't he only entitled, on the lying and wait instruction error argument, um, isn't he only entitled to a new trial if he had not also been found guilty on the premeditation and deliberation? That's absolutely correct. And if this court sends it back based on the jury instructions, the state will not be able to raise lying and wait again, but the state will be able to raise premeditation and deliberation. But why would he be entitled to a new trial if the jury's verdict on pre, uh, if there's no error in the jury's verdict on first degree murder for premeditation and deliberation? 
Well, it'd be the same thing as if it was just found guilty on felony murder and P&D. When the jury instruction was incorrect, misled the jury, and there's case law, State v. McComb, that says it's plain error if there's a faulty jury instruction, then he has a right to a new trial. Whether or not based on the P&D, because it's also the premeditation and deliberation that is directly affected by losing the protection of the Castle Doctrine. Uh, thank you, I've already run over my time. Thank you, counsel. We'll hear from the FLE. Good afternoon, Mr. Chief Justice and Associate Justices of the North Carolina Supreme Court. My name is Ben Zaney. I'm with the North Carolina Department of Justice, and I represent the state in this matter. Defendant here fails to show error or prejudice with regard to any of the issues presently before the court. Because there are common facts that are relevant to all of the issues today, I'd like to briefly run through those and then turn to the issues one after the other. The common facts here, uh, as this court have has previously alluded on an opinion on this case, uh, indicate that, that there's extensive evidence of the defendant's guilt in this case. Uh, and defendant fails to overcome that extensive evidence to show prejudice uh, if they were to even get to a prejudice analysis on any of their issues. That evidence includes the fact that the defendant is upset. He's upset at his wife. He's upset at his son that day. He's tr day drinking. He, uh, when he hears a noisy group in the street outside his home, he grabs a shotgun and yells at them from an upstairs window. Uh, he says, uh, this is a verbatim quote from his testimony. I'm sure if you holler out the window at somebody and tell them what I told them, they'd probably be upset. That's the defendant's characterization of his statements to the crowd uh, that is in the street outside. Counsel, I'm, I'm sorry. Do, does the fact that I make you upset turn me into an aggressor for the purposes of self-defense? I would say no, Your Honor. It's, it's obviously a fact-dependent inquiry, but I, I think that that's one fact in the... The, uh, in the calculation here, and I think you can take that fact plus what he says to the 911 call, to uh, which I was about to get to, to, to together to show his mindset and what he's doing towards the, the folks who happen to be there. No, I understand, and I just, I just wanted, and I, I may not have jumped in soon enough, um, does the fact that someone is in their home and yells out the window to be quiet uh, make them an aggressor for the purposes of self-defense uh, law? I would say generally no, Your Honor. But again, I don't think that that's, I don't think the facts here in this case are limited to, to just that fact, Your Honor. Uh, turning to the 911 call, uh, defendant called 911. Before the operator picked up, defendant said that he was, I'm going to kill him. Uh, he lied repeatedly to 911 about what was happening outside. Uh, he told 911 that he was locked and loaded and was going to go out to secure the neighborhood. He, uh, before. And, and counsel, he didn't do that. Right, he didn't go outside to secure the neighborhood. That's correct. He said it, but he didn't leave his home. He, he was in a place that he had a lawful right to be. He was in his home, yes, Your Honor. Right, and, and at that point, he had not. He said, um, would have made people upset outside. So, so if I tell someone to, to shut up and I use the F word, I, I am not entitled uh, to protections under the Castle Doctrine. 
I don't think that that's what the state's arguing generally, Your Honor. I think that the state's arguing in this particular case, given the evidence that the judge and the jury had before it, that, that under these circumstances, that it would be limited potentially. Okay, and, and just so I'm clear, those circumstances are um, I yelled, I was upset, and I made a phone call where um, I, I said, I have my gun in my home. Yelling, upset, cussing, uh, admitting that what he said is upsetting to the crowd outside. While he's yelling, he's holding a gun. Uh, those are all things that I think are relevant. And in addition to the things that he says on the 911 call indicating that he was the aggressor, Your Honor. When the 911 operator asked him for a numerical address, street address, the defendant did not provide that, just providing the general street. He, defendant, eventually hung up on the 911 operator before the 911 operator was done asking questions. The defendant then goes into his darkened garage with a shotgun loaded with slug rounds. The victim here, uh, and this, the evidence showed that the victim here is unrelated to the group that was in the street outside. The victim here, coming from a party down the street, cutting across the very edge of the defendant's lawn near the street. Uh, and, and, Counselor, now that you've gotten to the uh, garage situation, um, and I'd like to bring the lying in wait in. Uh, the question I ask, and we went off in a different direction before it was answered, is uh, what's the difference in watching and waiting and lying in wait and going downstairs in your own home, watching and waiting to see if the intruder that you've seen outside is going to forcibly enter your home? What's the difference, and how are we supposed to uh, draw that line? Well, Your Honor, I don't think that there's a couple of layers there that I, I will get to in turn. First, I... This, what happened with this victim is not the vic this victim did not approach the home, rattle the doorknob or anything of that. No, and I, I'm aware of that, but okay. we're from the pro perspective of the person inside the home yes, and being lying in wait, just moving down into the darkened garage that evidently was some kind of converted situation and waiting to see what's going to happen. Um, is that enough for lying in wait? I think it is, Your Honor, in the facts taken most li in the light most favorable to the state, which is the standard. Uh, I think it is once you've gotten past, once I, I think that the court here can consider that the jury, whether the jury could have gotten past the self-defense and castle doctrine protections, and seeing that it could, the jury could under these facts, then the jury gets to decide lying in wait. Uh, the position here, the state's position here is not saying that lying in wait erases the castle doctrine. The castle doctrine is looked at first. Defense of the home, self-defense concepts are looked at first. That's the order that those instructions appear to the jury. Once the jury gets past those instructions, if it decides that this defendant is no longer falls under those protections of self-defense or protections of the, uh, of the castle doctrine, uh, those presumptions, then and only then would it look at the lying in wait instruction. And under the circumstances here, the lying in wait instruction is, is appropriate, Your Honor. And so is it your position that the instructions were clear enough for the jury to understand First Castle Doctrine and then lying in wait? Yes, Your Honor, because they appear in that order in the jury instructions, and the transcript indicates the, one of the very first things the judge says in the jury charge portion of the transcript is he tells, he makes it clear on the record that the jury has provided a written copy of the instructions. And so the jury is not hearing these instructions one and only one time as the trial court's reading it. The jury has a paper copy of the instructions as well. Each juror did in front of them. Uh, and so, again, I can't, and I, I don't think that it's appropriate for this court to guess at what the jury is doing or when they're doing it. I don't think there's specific evidence of that here, Your Honor, but to the extent that that can be gleaned from the order of the instructions and the fact that the juror has, the jurors have their own copies of the instructions, I think it's clear. 
And, and one fact we haven't talked about, but it seems to me would be relevant to the jury determining whether or not the, ca the castle doctrine applies here is, is where the defendant actually was when he was shot. And as I understand it, the, the, there was in evidence that the first 12 feet of the yard was public right of way. So even with the notion that once you are in the curtilage of a house, someone has the right to, to defend with deadly force against you, couldn't the jury have found that, that at the, the, the deceased, the victim here was not in the curtilage of the house? I believe that that's a fair interpretation of the facts, Your Honor. There, the state did present evidence that there was a, a right of way within the first 12 feet of the yard, and then there was extensive evidence uh, offered by both parties that uh, made it clear that the victim, when he was shot, basically immediately fell. And then the place where the victim was located was uh, within a foot or so of the curb, depending on who you, you talk to. Uh, there was one wit witness said, that the victim was within five feet of the curb. He fell on the curb, half street, half grass curb area. Uh, a neighbor testified, Daniel Dean testified, that um, he was on the scene less than a minute from the shooting and the victim was probably a foot or two feet off into the grass off the curb. Uh, a witness that defendant called testified that there were no sidewalks in this neighborhood, but had there been a sidewalk, the victim's body would have been between the sidewalk and the curb in that thin strip of grass, not on the sidewalk or in the defendant's yard. So this victim is running on the outermost edge of the yard uh, when he is shot. He's shot with no warning uh, of, of any type. Um, and um, the, when the defendant is initially t uh, asked by police why he shot this victim, the defendant's initial statements, and in fact the defendant admits that he told the police more than 10 times that it was a warning shot. Um, so all of that considered here, um, I think make it uh, clear that this is uh, to take the second issue first, that lying in wait uh, was an appropriate instruction. I think the victim also, under this court's case law, surprise of the victim is an element, uh, or, or is one of the necessary elements for a lying in wait instruction. I think there's no question here that this victim was surprised by the attack. In, th in fact, the onlookers uh, or bystanders um, were also surprised, and it took them some time to figure out where the shot had even come from. Uh, and it's only by piecing together that there's glass now in the driveway and seeing that there's a broken window that folks were able to determine where it came from. A police officer had to shine his light, testified that he had to shine his light into the garage to be able to see the, uh, into there. And, and so there's no light on in the garage or anything of that nature. Um, and as this court has um, asked my colleague on the other side, um, that's even if this court were to uh, decide that it was error to give the lying await instruction, the verdict sheet makes it clear that the jury also convicted on the alternative theory of premeditation and deliberation. So even if it was error to give that instruction, the jury still found guilty, found the defendant guilty on premeditation and deliberation. Uh, I'm gonna go back to the, the first issue here, uh, if, if that's uh, okay with the court, just in regards to the aggressor doctrine and so, it's- And I have some questions about that. Yes, um, so you're also familiar with State versus Six. Yes, sir. And um, so, if someone comes down the stairs in their home and there's somebody in their house, they live alone, and so they take their gun out and shoot whoever that is in the back of the head, under the common law, would you be the aggressor there? I, I'm not sure under those facts that you would be the aggressor, Your Honor, under the common law, no. You're saying the, the homeowner? Yes. 
I mean, it, it may, it may or may not. It depends. Uh, if that, just taking those facts that they, the other person hasn't threatened you, Your Honor, or anything of that nature. Right. Um, I, the common law talks, at least some of the cases that I could find, Your Honor, about the common law, uh, talk about if someone's merely trespassing, but if they're in your home, it's perhaps a bit more than a mere trespasser. But there's at least some common law that indicates that if someone's a mere trespasser, that you're supposed to first tell them to leave, then use the force, right. you know, just enough to get them to leave, basically. Right, because doesn't the law, the law expects you to make some calculation about whether or not you're actually in, there's the threat of imminent death, violent harm, and you know, nothing else in that sort of scenario, we might say, well, don't just shoot the person, do something else until you can form, have that formulation. And one of the things the Castle Doctrine is doing is saying, you don't have to make You don't have to do that. Yes, sir. And so it's odd that we that trial courts, the pattern jury instruction, that there seems to be this interpretation of the provocation language that is doing the same thing that the common law aggressor instruction would be doing. When it, it seems like the provocation that you that would preclude the use of the castle doctrine is if you provoked the person to unlawfully enter your property or be put in the position where you're now allowed to have that reasonable belief by law and shoot them. And, but you're, you didn't argue that in your, your brief. You seem to think the state's position is the pattern, footnote four, the pattern jury instruction is the correct instruction for provocation and castle doctrine. Am I right about that? I, I think the, how I wrote the brief, Your Honor, was is that this court doesn't even need to get close to that issue. There's the issue of waiver, which this court right. uh, first uh, should address. And I, I think that that issue is, is um, uh, strongly in favor of the state. But even then, I, I think a fair read of the jury instruction here is that the, the trial court instructed the, the language of 1451-4 when it was giving the instruction on defense of habitation, the castle doctrine. It didn't get into the common law aggressor doctrine that the defendant asked for until it gave the more generalized self-defense instruction. And so I think even if this court thinks that there's something wrong with the common law aggressor doctrine under the current statutes, that that, that instruction was given as part of the self-defense portion and not as part of the defense of habitation portion. And then they're separated in, in the jury instructions. There's, there's, I think, two pages or so between the, those two instructions. And so I think it's clear that to the extent, again, if this court is inclined to find that it would be, it would be error to do that, I don't think that that's what happened at the trial court in this case. Um, and so, again, I think that the state thinks that that's, that's not an issue for the court for those two reasons. And then beyond that, prejudice is, is obviously still another issue as this court has uh, held, you know, there's extensive evidence of the defendant's guilt here in this case. And so even if there is an instructional error that the defendant is at, uh, looking at or asking this court to look at from a plain error standpoint, was there a reasonable, I apologize, I'm gonna botch the standard, but a reasonable probability of another outcome effectively in, in that analysis. And here, um, that isn't, I don't think that you can say that given the extensive evidence, Your Honor. I don't have anything else that I'd like to say about the first issue, but I would like to touch briefly on the third issue regarding the, the, the um, uh, closing argument by the prosecutor. Uh, just briefly, uh, the defend, defendant below did not object to the portions of the closing argument that they now raise on appeal. So the review is uh, whether uh, any of that argument was so grossly improper as the trial court had a duty to intervene on its own uh, volition. Um, and the defendant's argument seems to be that the, the prosecutor misstated the law 
if that's the case, misstatement, if, that, if this court finds that to be the case, misstatements of law generally are viewed as corrected by or cured by proper jury instructions. So this court would also have to look at whether the jury instructions here, which have been you know, discussed thoroughly today and in the briefs, um, were proper in such that they cured any error that occurred. Uh, there are two main parts of the closing argument that the defendant raised. Um, I don't think that either is a misstatement of law. Uh, the defendant acknowledged, or sorry, the prosecutor acknowledged the defendant had no duty to retreat in his own home. And then other than that is arguing the facts of the case. I don't think that he's arguing a legal conclusion at that moment. Uh, and then for, furthermore, with regard to the factors to determine the reasonableness of a defendant's belief that they needed to use force, uh, as this court uh, held in Safety Richardson and in other cases, relative size, strength, age, uh, whether or not the victim has a weapon, whether or not the victim has a reputation for violence are factors that a defendant might use to prove or to show that they, their, uh, imminent, their fear of imminent bodily harm was reasonable under the circumstances. It's not inappropriate for the prosecutor to comment on those factors as ones that defendant may potentially assert uh, in a case. Um, defendant's characterization of that argument in their brief is that the prosecutor is requiring proof of a certain factor. But that doesn't seem to be, if you read the argument, that's not at all what the prosecutor is doing. The prosecutor was sort of going through the factors one by one and saying, this factor is not applicable under these facts, this factor is not applicable under these facts. It wasn't requiring any single one. It wasn't asking the jury to say any single one of those factors is dispositive. Uh, and not only that, but the prosecutor in his closing argument uh, gave, uh, noted that the factors themselves have limited applicability. Many of the factors are relevant to parties engaging in a fist fight, not the sort of exchange that happened here. Uh, and so to the extent that the prosecutor was talking about these factors, even the prosecutor was sort of holding them at arm's length relative to the discussion uh, in the closing argument. So again, And so counselor, let me uh, have you clarify for me. So it's your position that these factors were argued in the context of self-defense, but not the castle doctrine. For example, if someone comes into my house in the middle of the night, I'm under the castle doctrine. He was not saying that I had to size him up and figure out whether I could take him or not um, uh, in the context of the castle doctrine. Instead, it was more in the self-defense um, argument. Right, assuming that the presumption has fallen away, assuming that you're just looking at the, the castle doctrine presumption of reasonable fear has fallen away and you're just now in a self-defense context where you're trying to do that analysis. Yes, Your Honor, that's, that's our, the state's position here. So again, this is not a misstatement of law. It's not improper argument, much less grossly improper argument. Um, and ultimately the, the conviction based, to the extent that the conviction was based on any one of these arguments, that conviction is not unfair given the extensive evidence, evidence of guilt in this case. Unless there are any other questions from the court, uh, the state would ask that this court affirm the judgment below and ultimately affirm the conviction. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. Rebuttal. Justice Dietz, going back to our favorite topic of the difference between the Castle Doctrine and common law, back in 1979, which would have been common law in State v. McCombs, this court at 297 NC 151, this court explained that the purpose of being able to defend your home is to provide protection to the occupants of a home under circumstances which might not allow them an opportunity to see the assailant or ascertain his purpose, other than to speculate from his attempt to gain entry by force that he poses a grave danger to them. So even back in 1979, the thought behind protecting your home, the Castle Doctrine, was there's a presumption 
that someone who is trying to enter your home is doing it for no good purpose, that he's doing it to commit a crime. That thread runs through both the common law and the castle doctrine. And Justice Earls, going back to the curtilage and public right-of-way, I live in a, in a subdivision with private roads, but everyone has the right-of-way to go on those roads. I'm still liable for them. It's still my property. Still in the deed, it's my property. So whether or not he was lying on the lawn within uh, a public right-of-way, it's still the Copley's yard. It's the yard they take care of. It's um, not property of the state of North Carolina. And there is some dispute about exactly where the uh, body fell. Agent Carla Foran testified that a neighbor said someone started to drag the body. Others then tried to drag Mr. Thomas until a neighbor told them to stop and wait for EMS. That's transcript page 1564. But, but we still are in the realm of taking the evidence in the light most favorable to the state, correct? This is the state. It's an officer testifying. But, it, but there was other evidence about where the body was as well. All of the evidence places the body within about four and a half feet towards the house from the curb. It's definitely on the grass in the yard. And the case law is that curtilage is your yard. But if, if so you're saying the fact that it's a public right of way doesn't matter because it was in front of their house? Well, he's standing in his garage. Someone comes running towards the garage. And remember, this isn't one or two people outside, it's a crowd of we know more than 20 because the officer testifies 20 dispersed. There's no way he's able to distinguish exactly where this person is coming from. He just knows he's running towards his house. Well, there, that's some evidence, but there was other evidence that he, that, he was, that he was running to get away. And I guess where I'm going with this ultimately is in a neighborhood where there are no sidewalks, surely you're not saying that you can be shot if you're walking along the side of someone's house. That, that you can be interpreted to be trying to enter the home when you're on the edge next to the curb of someone's house. I would agree that if my six-year-old neighbor came chasing a ball, your situation would apply. But what we have here is a crowd that has shown guns to Chad Copley one of them has, has aimed a gun at the house, and he has no way of distinguishing whether one of those people is the one that's running towards his house or if it's someone else. So no, you do not have a right to run towards my house when you may have a gun. And going back to 1979 and the Castle Doctrine now, you don't have to be able to discern who the assailant is and whether the assailant is got a gun. But he's been shown the guns. This isn't some innocent neighbor walking their dog. Uh, if the court has no other questions, I'm running out of time. I just want to reiterate that what we're asking for is a new trial in which a properly instructed jury gets to decide the issues. And happy Valentine's Day.
Thank you, Council.